welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing a bonus intro section to the upcoming course that I'll be teaching beginning May 7th called Gathering the Gods, where I'll be reviewing the main texts and other primary sources of information about the Old Norse gods, Thor, Odin, and Freya. What I'll share in this episode is some general information to help my listeners and the participants in this course get orientated toward what the field of Old Norse gods is and can look like. These materials were going to be the very first part of the first lecture in this course, but I decided to share them with my listeners more broadly so that everybody can have this brief introduction to Old Norse polytheism. And if you've been considering taking the course, you'll get a little taster of what's inside. If you're listening to this episode after May 7th, 2023, you can still purchase the course. The recordings will be available through the link in the show notes and all of the course materials. However, May 7th is the deadline to sign up for the live and guided section of this course, where I'll be hosting live discussion calls to look more closely at the aspects of these texts and this information that interest participants personally. In this intro unit, I'll be sharing some primary information about notions of paganism, definitions of gods, how the old Norse gods function in relationship to humankind, and how they relate to the beginning and the end of the world as Old Norse pagans would have seen it or have spoken of it. I'll start by defining paganism itself. Paganism is a catch-all term for the practices and beliefs of people in Europe prior to Christianization of Europe. The word was invented by Roman Christians who needed a term for everyone who had not converted to their religion. And the word pagan derives from paganus, which means a country dweller or a bumpkin, someone who lives outside of the city and by implication is not keeping up with the times. It was a term with the embedded assumption that all peoples on the earth of all different religions and backgrounds should eventually convert to Christianity. Though this term was originally derogatory, now modern pagans have adopted it to refer to the practices that they participate in, the religious expression that they choose, that is decentralized, is often locally focused, and does not make Christianity central to its meaning-making in the world and its definition of what is sacred. Likewise, the word heathen, which is more commonly used to refer to pagans living in modern-day Scandinavia, which is the region of Old Norse culture primarily, heathen is a term that means almost the same thing, heath dwellers, and by implication, 
not yet Christian, and by further implication, not civilized. When I talk about Old Norse religion, I'm talking specifically about a period of time in Scandinavia and other countries that shared culture with it, where the Old Norse language was spoken. And this period of time maps roughly onto what's known as the Viking era. One of the reasons we speak so much, historians and folklorists and mythologists, about Old Norse religion and Old Norse mythology is simply because texts that originated in this era in oral tradition, that is shared through story, song, poetry, and practice, were later written down in some form in the Middle Ages, that was the Christian era, many of them in Iceland. So while there was pagan practice and belief through all time in human history in all areas of the world, not all of these traditions managed to leave textual traces in the way that Old Norse paganism did. And when I say Old Norse paganism, I don't mean one religion. I don't mean a fixed system of how the cosmos is oriented or even which or how many gods there are. Because paganism itself, historically, was not organized. And much of the communication technology that we take for granted now did not exist in the ancient world. Therefore, each region of the world would have its own expression of the sacred and human relationship to it. Even within a community, there would be variation in different kinds of beliefs. And of course, these beliefs would also change through time, through the centuries, through the decades, and by virtue of intercultural contact with other language groups and other religious traditions and other mythologies. When we talk about pagan religions, we're typically talking about polytheistic and animistic regional practices of relationship with otherworldly forces and beings. This is a very general definition of religions that are not major world-organized religions, but in general, there tended to be a belief in an other world, and this is where beings such as gods exist and operate from, and this is a world that is only partially or not visible to humankind and has the ability to affect human lives and experiences. Gods are powerful beings, often more powerful than humans. And the word for gods in Old Norse that's used most often bears the same root as our word god. And the root of this word is something like someone who is called upon. So it is the fact that humankind finds a particular figure of use at a particular point in time in a particular climate or cultural context that makes that figure a god. We are accustomed to thinking of gods in 
monotheistic terms at this moment in history. We tend to think of them as all-powerful and having created all things, and also omniscient, being able to see all. But this is actually an exceptional way of thinking of gods, and I would say that at most times in history, a god is much more likely to be defined on a continuum of power, influence, and wisdom with human beings and all other matter in the world or worlds. That is to say, a god is not all-powerful, but a god is powerful relative to a human, and this is why a human being would call upon them for assistance in living their human life. And I think this is a really important thing to keep in mind when we look back on historical accounts of gods, that our expectations have been primed to think of them as something outside of the world and something difficult to relate to. When the more that I learn about how historical religious belief and ritual and practices were formed, the more interesting relating to figures called gods becomes, for me personally. Of the gods in the Old Norse polytheistic beliefs, some gods are closer and more amenable to human desires than others, and the ways that they relate to humans change over time. And this is where we get difficult questions arising looking at these texts and looking at these stories because they tend to contradict themselves, the different accounts that we have. And this is a good thing because it shows that there is variation in the ways that humans desire to relate to the world, desire to build relationships, to value, and to nature. Some of the difficult questions that arise from the variability of belief through time are questions like, are Frigg and Freya one and the same goddess? Or are all goddesses fertility goddesses? These are questions that come up a lot in studying Old Norse mythology and religion because it is clear when you start to dig that beliefs have changed over time and have been influenced by changing priorities. In this case, it seems very likely that confusion about the difference between goddesses and overemphasis on fertility in interpretation of goddess figures has been influenced by the development of patriarchal structures in Old Norse society in the last 1,500 years or so. And I actually find this encouraging, this variability of belief, because it demonstrates that the better we understand the shifts and changes that have occurred in history, the better we understand the ideas that are available to us and how they come into being, the more empowered we become to take those ideas and make them our own, to put them to use in intelligent and loving ways, instead of just accepting them as a given from above, so to speak. The main written sources of information about Old Norse mythology and religion both come from Iceland in the 13th century and were written by Christian scribes and scholars. 
These texts originated, as I said earlier, in the oral tradition and were written down at some point. It's not entirely clear the history of when and how these poems were collected and stories, but there are two manuscripts, roughly, or two collections that carry the bulk of the material, and that is a book called The Edda, a manuscript by Snorri Sturluson, written in 1220. And Snorri was a chieftain with connections to royalty in Norway, and he was really interested in poetry, specifically, and how one might compose new poetry using the old forms and topics that were still being inherited from the pre-Christian era, these characters of the gods and what they were up to and what the special names you could use for them were, which sometimes took the form of kennings, which are poetic ways of saying things indirectly. So for an example from Beowulf, the old English poem, which also used kennings, instead of saying the ocean, you might say the whale road. So Snorri, Sturluson, was really interested in recording the meaning of expressions such as these and helping others who wanted to become poets to acquire the tools to do so. And it's an accident that he happened to retain so much crucial information about pre-Christian mythology in the North. The second such manuscript is called the Poetic Edda, which is named after Snorri's Edda, kind of a misnomer, but the difference is that Snorri's book is prose, mostly, that is, plain speak, and the Poetic Edda is in poetry. It's a collection of poems whose main source is a manuscript called the Codex Regius from the 1270s. And this is an especially important collection because it contains a poem called Vullespau, which translates as the seeress's prophecy. Spau meaning something like an earlier form of to spy or to see or to have a vision or a, a peak of something. And this poem, Vullespau, describes the creation and the destruction of the cosmos according to an old Norse worldview. And it does so in alliterative verse, which is what all of the Old Norse poetry is in. And I'll demonstrate for you later in this unit how it might have sounded. You'll notice that it does not rhyme in the same way as modern poetry often does in modern songs. I mention Vullespau because it is one of the primary sources for our understanding of the origin of the world, how it was created out of the body of the giant Ymir, and how at the end of time it will be destroyed in a great battle between the gods, the Yitnar, sometimes translated as giants, and various enormous monsters, including Fenrir, the wolf, and Midgar's Urmur, the Midgard serpent. This text is generally believed to be authentically pagan in most of its details, though it can't be said to be entirely free of Christian influence, as no texts surviving probably are. 
Of course, there would be very likely multiple versions of the story of how the world was made and how it might end across the regions where Old Norse was spoken. But various elements of the story go back to Proto-Indo-European roots, which really testifies to the age of this account. And I will share the entirety of the poem Vilspau in translation in the show notes so that you can download and read it if you'd like. This is a facing page translation produced by Edward Pettit just this year. I encourage you to sit down with it and read it. You could print it out, take a pencil, read the notes. There are endnotes that explain every part of the poem and the translation decisions that were made, the context of certain statements and ways of saying things, and see for yourself how it feels to read a pagan text like this. Because you can hear about these stories, in summary, from people like me and other storytellers, but there is something to be said for encountering these texts firsthand in as basic and unmediated a form as possible, despite the many filters of communication that have been laid over it over time. I want you to pay attention as you encounter this text to maybe what surprises you about it, maybe what assumptions you had made that got disrupted, and also what confuses you (laughs) or interests you about it, because it's the area's of our learning where we don't know something yet, where there's friction and tension and sometimes even a sense of insecurity because of what we don't know and even because of what we've lost culturally. And I think these are all really important to pay attention to. These are sites of growth and of great discovery. So I hope you'll read that sometime when you have a moment to. Some things that have interested me about the gods I'll be teaching about in this course, I'll share now. I'm really interested in the representation of Thor as a brute who smashes things and is a little bit mindless, because I personally object somewhat to violence in general for no purpose. And yet I feel personally very interested in Thor and representations of Thor and some of the surprises that I've encountered as I look further into that representation is the discovery that Thor's hammer, which we usually see him bludgeoning Jutnar with, giants, can also be used as a tool for blessing. And this is shown in the mythology and also in the archaeological record. It seems very obvious that Thor's hammers forged in metal, were sometimes used in ritual. And to me, that broadens this idea of Thor as this smashing hoodlum and brings it into much more of an interesting ritual context that's also borne out in his relationship to the Jutnar, those beings that we often see the Aesir gods embroiled in conflict with. The scholar John Lindo, who is one of the most reliable and helpful scholars on Old Norse mythology in general, has demonstrated how conflict with the Jutnar 
in Old Norse mythology, violence and murder even, of the relations of the gods, the giants who are intertwined with them in the origin of the world and the creation of the world from the destruction of the giant Ymir, he's shown that this violence in the Old Norse worldview, at least in the parts of it that we are shown, is also a precondition for life. And that Thor's conflict with this other race of beings, if you can call them a race, is in itself a creative act, which, though it doesn't solve the problem of violence, does, for me, give it context in a larger system of meaning and a symbolic system at that, because death is the precondition for life. I'm also very interested in representations of Odin as the highest god and the creator of all life on earth. And the fact that he is this patriarchal top-down authority has troubled me at times. And so the more I look into it, the more I learn about how that treatment of this figure has developed over time out of a particular cultural context of warrior chiefdoms that emerged in the 5th century in Scandinavia. And this was a very patriarchal, war-oriented corner of Scandinavian culture that didn't necessarily represent popular belief, but definitely got passed down in poetry because these petty kings who belonged to this warrior chieftain class hired poets to write poems about them and to liken them to the gods, and particularly Odin, who is a very warlike god. I'll also be speaking about the confusion around the identity of Freya and how research of Freya fits into the context of the history of research of goddesses in general, in pagan history and culture, which is a field of research that has been only recently taken up with much seriousness in the last 40 or so years, which is not a very long time considering these texts have been around for almost a thousand So in this course, I will be focusing mainly on written texts that refer to Norse gods, but I will also bring in some archaeological and historical resources to fill out that picture. Though I am a practicing pagan myself, the content in these lectures will be focused on more of a literary and historical analysis to try to get a picture of these texts as cultural artifacts. The reason that I'm interested in these texts myself is partly because I have a curiosity about the history of religions and culture, and also because I'm interested in developing a connection to historical spiritual practices in Europe. But however you choose to use these texts and the information you receive here is totally up to you, and I'll remain neutral on that subject. So while I won't be talking about modern pagan application of these Old Norse materials in the lectures, I do welcome questions of that kind and discussion of that kind in the live and guided tier of this course. The live classes that are happening a week after each unit is released for folks who have signed up for this tier will include close readings of the texts and discussion of topics related to the lecture 
based on what the folks in this section of the course show an interest in. We'll have a Discord server where we can discuss before our live calls, and you can share questions that you have to offer them as a possible focus in the live classes. My hope for this course is that whatever your orientation is to historical paganism, that you will come out of relating to these materials, feeling a greater sense of empowerment and understanding with relation to Old Norse polytheism and religion. So that whether you're writing something based on Old Norse myth, or whether you're constructing rituals to share with a group of people, that you'll know where you stand in relationship to what is actually known about the figures called Thor, Odin, and Freya. And that way you can make informed decisions about how you want to engage with that material and with those beings, whether you consider them real or fictional. I'm coming to a close. I'll end this intro unit with an invitation to go into the show notes and download the materials I've attached to this recording. You'll get the poem Vullisbau in English translation by Edward Pettit, along with an outline of the points in this introduction and a transcript of what I said here today. If this introduction felt interesting and even exciting to listen to, and you feel like you want to participate in the rest of the course, please click the link to the sales page in the show notes where you can learn more about the course, the dates that it's running, what it involves, and if you like, you can sign up. The first unit will be delivered by email on May 7th, and the first live call for the live and guided section will happen on May 14th. There are two options for accessing the course, as I mentioned, and I'll outline them here. The first option is self-led, and you could access that at any time. It gives you downloads of all the course materials, the lectures in audio format, transcripts, a guide to each unit, the readings of primary source texts and some additional scholarship on those texts, and other sources of information on Old Norse religion that I'll provide. And the second option, the live and guided tier, gives you everything in the first, but with the addition of participating in three bi-weekly live group Zoom calls. And this is where we'll get a chance to deepen and enrich our interpretation of those primary texts, attesting to the features of Old Norse gods. If you're wondering about my background, I am a medievalist, I have a master's in medieval studies in Middle English, and I have some knowledge of Icelandic, which is the closest modern language to Old Norse. I'm also a trained teacher with a specialization in Indigenous education, which informs my post-colonial anti-imperialist approach, and also my passion for preserving traditional knowledge and reversing culture loss among European-descended people and others. I always especially enjoy the live calls in the courses that I teach. I love the kinds of questions that people bring and the genuine presence that folks tend to show up with in my spaces. People tell me that taking courses with me with a live element really helps them to make connections with the course materials to aspects of their own 
everyday lives and to access perspectives that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. If you have any questions about this course or how to access it, you can email me at fairfolkcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that this unit will be of service to everyone listening. And I'll leave you now with an example, as I promised, of what Old Norse alliterative verse might have sounded like with my modern Icelandic Canadian accent. I've been really excited lately to discover that a lot of alliterative verse, so that's a form of poetry common to all Germanic languages that goes back into the pagan era. I've been delighted to discover that alliterative verse can be set to music, can be sung to a melody or several. And though it's not clear that Old Norse poetry was sung most of the time, it seems that it wasn't, it seems very unlikely to me that it was never sung. Because if something can be sung and can be spoken, in my experience, at some point, humans will find a way to sing it. So I am going to sing to you the first four stanzas of Völuspau to the melody created by the band Finon for the oldest Welsh lullaby, Peus Dinogad, Dinogad's Smock, because I noticed that the two poems have a similar meter. First, I'll read these stanzas to you in English. This is Edward Pettit's translation. A hearing, I ask, from all kindreds, greater and lesser, the sons of Heimdatler. You wish, Valfeder, that I well recount ancient tales of the living, those which I recall from longest ago. I recall giants born of old, those who formerly had fostered me. Nine worlds I recall, nine wood-dwelling women, the glorious measure-tree beneath the ground. It was early in ages when Emir lived. There was neither sand nor sea nor cool waves. No earth existed at all, nor sky above, a gap of gaping abysses and grass nowhere. Before the sons of Burr lifted up lands, they who gave shape to glorious Midgarder. The sun shone from the south on the hall's stones, then the ground was overgrown with green leek. Flios be there, Mary Oak Minimugu Heim dot Fowler for the mick fide of thee. 
Sare rimel bygdi Var sander nesar nesvaller utni Jörd fansk eiva Nje upp himmin Gap fargen unga en gras kvergi Alder bursinin Bjöðum um yppðu Þer er miðgarð mæran skopu Sól skein sutnan Á salarsteina Þá var grund gróin grænum lauki Thank you very much for listening and take good care.